And so we are going to now move to a panel discussion, which will be moderated by my co-moderator, Dr. Landowitz. But I did want to just introduce a few panel members that have not previously been uh, speakers thus far. First one is Pete Anderson, who is Professor of Pharmaceutical Science at University of Colorado in Denver. He's uh, uh, familiar to many of us and done a very important seminal work in clinical pharmacology of anti-HIV medicines, and particularly in the PrEP space, a lot of the seminal articles on pharmacology of PrEP are thanks to Pete. And so we're very pleased to be able to have him on our panel discussion for this afternoon. We also welcome Dr. Kevin Ard, who is the medical director at uh, the National LGBTQIA+, at the Fenway Hospital in Massachusetts. He's a practicing condition and also a faculty member in their division of infectious diseases. His interests are in LGBTQ health and prevention and treatment of sexually transmitted infections and HIV. Carolyn Chu is an associate professor at UC San Francisco. Dr. Chu is in the family and community medicine department. She provides comprehensive HIV hepatitis and primary care to patients at their network's family health center. And Aniruda Hazra, who is assistant professor at University of Chicago in Illinois, who's director of their fellowship program, their sexual wellness clinic, and the Chicago Center for HIV Elimination, director of STI services. So his interests are around sexually transmitted infections and their impact on gender and sexual minorities. He's also interested in complex HIV management, hepatitis C treatment, anoscopy, and treatment of opioid use disorder. And so we're very pleased to welcome him and also welcome back Dr. Joe Iran, who I introduced previously. So Rafi, I'm gonna hand over to you now to start with our fantastic cases for the panel discussion. No, thanks, Sue. Um, can everyone see the slides okay? Is, it, is the sharing working okay? Looks good to me. Okay, fantastic. So um, thanks everyone for persevering with us. I know it's been a long morning full of really great information um, and we're gonna try and be um, a little bit of a pivot here um, and, and talk about some, some cases. These are all real cases, um, some actually uh, provided to us by the panelists and the goal of this is going to be really to talk through the thought process of dealing with these challenging situations. A lot of the time, there aren't right or wrong answers. Um, we just thought it would be really useful um, to go through the thought process when using uh, these long-acting products in clinical practice now that we have all of the data and some insights into the challenges with implementation. Um, so we'll see how many cases we get through. We will have about 10 or 15 minutes at the end for people who are in the audience. If you want to throw in your challenging cases, if they bring up different, different issues, uh, then we talk about here, we'd love to think about them with you. Um, and we promise that we won't have all the answers either. Um, so that's always fun. These are my disclosures. Um, and these are our learning objectives, um, uh, for, for this session. We're just gonna talk about the considerations of management of low-level viremia and virologic failure in cabriolpivirane treatment, considerations for management of these really challenging discordant 
results um, when using long-acting PrEP and where you can get help. And perhaps this last bullet is probably going to be the most practical thing that we're going to share with you um, in this session of, you know, how do you phone a friend if you were playing who wants to be a millionaire on television or something like that. Okay, first case. So this is a real case. Um, it's actually a case that um, Dr. Hazra has now published. Um, uh, so some of you may be familiar with it, but I think it'll be really helpful for us to all hear what Dr. Hazra and his team were thinking um, as, as this unfolded. And we actually have a sort of a fun opportunity for some longer term follow-up um, uh, on this particular patient. So um, you can pretend that a colleague has sent you an email to ask about this patient. So this is a 28 year old gender diverse patient who was assigned male at birth, who had been on daily oral FTAF prep for about 10 months and had been doing pretty well from an adherence standpoint. Um, there's also a history of, of controlled hypothyroidism and a self-report of hypogonadism that has led to, um, let's say, off-label um, polypharmacy use of a number of endocrinologic interventions, including testosterone that's resulted in significantly elevated um, clinical testosterone concentrations. Um, he, uh, this, this, uh, this individual is sexually active with cisgender men. I apologize. I um, was about to misgender this, this uh, patient there. Um, the preferred pronouns are, are they, them. So uh, they, they practice condomless oral and anal sex with cisgender men. Their primary partners are 20 to 30 unique non-primary partners um, uh, monthly in addition to their primary partner. They've recently uh, begun engaging in anal fisting and there was recent diagnoses of syphilis and MPOX within the last six months. The primary partner is living with HIV and has um, resistance associated mutations, including a K65R um, in reverse transcriptase and an integrase 92G that has resulted in a somewhat unusual treatment regimen for the primary partner of dolutegravir and boosted darunavir, but um, there's been uh, undetectable documented RNAs for about two years, although there's some uh, rumor that there had been about a one month discontinuation of ART in the not too distant past. So um, you can probably get um, a sense of where this story is likely going. Um, but we'll proceed with the story and then we'll take a break for, for thoughts about what you would do. So the patient decided that he was interested in CABLA and he received um, three injections of CABLA and they were on time. They happened at days 0, 27, and 91. Um, and it, somewhat incidentally, or perhaps not, the, there was a flu-like illness that was associated with a positive COVID test um, on about day 76 in that cycle. So you can see on this little chart um, where in the cabotegravir injection cycle that happened. It was sort of partway between the second and third injections. Um, and that, uh, that positive COVID result resulted in treatment with a five-day course of nirmeltravir, ritonavir, um, uh, at standard doses. Um, so uh, 
at the day of the third injection is where the story starts to get interesting. Um, the, uh, on that day of injection, um, an HIV antigen antibody test was not reactive, but an RNA PCR test was detected at a level of 30 copies per milliliter. On that date, STI testing was performed and was negative. Um, that included an RPR that was not reactive, oral, urine, and rectal GCCT swabbing that was negative. And um, with that um, uh, result, the, the patient was brought back in nine days later um, and had tests repeated. Um, I, I, on those, uh, on that repeat testing, an antigen antibody test was reactive. Um, a discriminatory test on that antigen antibody test was detected for HIV-1, and a repeat RNA was detected at 20 copies per milliliter. Um, uh, there was a genotype attempted, but was not able to be run. Um, and uh, let me take a pause right there. We do get some additional information that's already on this slide. But Anu, do you want to talk a little bit about what you and the team were thinking when you got these results and what your dilemma was and how you decided to, to get help to figure out what the next things to do were? Yeah, thank you, Rafi, for um, going through this case. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the 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 <laughs> the first emotion was like I think sheer confusion of trying to understand what was happening here. I think um, you know the the first test uh, we had a protocol in place. Um, this was a, a patient Howard Brown Health, which is a large LGBT health center in the Midwest. We um, had been implementing uh, Cabalet for Prep uh, for a bit of time, um, still not a full year, but I had a decent cohort of folks, and so we had a protocol in place where every patient coming in would have a rapid fourth generation antibody antigen screen, and then would have a blood draw for uh, um, uh, HIV one RNA. We obviously would not wait for the RNA before, you know, administering the um, the injection, but would uh, at least have that pending uh, after the patient left the clinic. Um, and so after this first one came came back, I think this was a bit confusing, and we didn't know what to make of of the uh, uh, of, of of the low level RNA. Um, and so you know, we decided to have the patient come back, uh, you know, and uh, and because of delays, and this happened literally around the holidays, which made things a lot more convoluted. Um, uh, we had to come back at least within nine days. And and at that point, the, the, the rapid fourth gen in the clinic was uh, was reactive. And we also sent this out to a third uh, party laboratory, which is reactive and then detected the HIV-1 antibodies on the differentiation uh, assay. And then the viral load came back again at, at 20 copies. Going into this um, uh, second visit on day 100, um, I think that's when um, you know, we had discussions with a, um, with a few other sort of infectious disease uh, physicians that work in our clinic um, to really think about, you know, we should probably get this person on, on, on full treatment uh, while we're waiting for results to go, you know, come back and sort of coming back to um, uh, Dr. Kelly's talk earlier this morning about, you know, what to do with, um, you know, a concern for a seroconversion on PrEP and this sort of options one and three, one just waiting and watching and option three actually starting them on, on, uh, on a fully suppressive regimen because obviously we can't take away the Cabalet at this point. Um, and so we opted to start them on um, FTAF and, and thinking that with the Cabalet, that would be a full regimen um, while we waited for sort of the dust to settle uh, with that second result. And so when the second result came back that I think, you know, it was hard for 
us to write off two positive RNAs as you know two false positives of a test with nearly 99% um, sensitivity and specificity for 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 HIV. Um, and I think that in itself made us feel um, I think a lot more uh, sure if that's you know if I can even use a a, an, a verb that uh, strongly uh, that that this patient had potentially started converted on on Cavalier. Yeah, Anu, thank that. That's really great. And you know, just to give a little bit more context, you can see on this slide the team in deploying CabLA did everything perfectly here, right? They followed all the guidelines. They had an antigen antibody test and RNAs before, or or sent at the time of each of these injections. So the question of whether or not there was HIV infection that antedated the starting of the cabotegravir seems pretty unlikely to me. Um, uh, you know, because I did sort of throw that bombshell um, into the history of the, the provocative question of whether the primary partner had been off treatment for uh, any period of time. Um, let me ask um, Pete, first of all, um, and then I want to come back to Joe with a different question. Pete, you know, the, the team leveraged pharmacology here and got a plasma cab concentration um, uh, about 30 days um, after that uh, that third injection. And the plasma concentration for cabotegravir came back at um, 1,180 nanograms per mil. And, you know, we had a question earlier after one of the, the, the didactic lectures about the use of therapeutic drug monitoring. This isn't quite that, but uh, I think the team was trying to get a, an idea of is the PK or the injection that was done somehow... Yeah, Rafe, you you, uh, you went out there. Your your um, audio went out for a second there. So I, but I think I got the question. Uh, can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Terrific. Uh, yeah, I, I think this the pharmacology is a piece of the puzzle that that is useful here. Um, and we don't have a threshold, you know, a target yet uh, for cab for prep. Um, I think one is coming. Um, you know, in the, as we get more information and we analyze more and more uh, breakthrough infections. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, Joe uh, Aaron showed earlier that some of the infections from 083, of course, people had levels up in the eight times the PAIC90. Um, so, it, you know, it's going to take time to really um, tease out uh, the um, pharmacology contributions. Anyway, but I, what I would say is that um, you, you do want to look for expected levels. Like is 1,180 nanogram per mil expected? And in terms of population, you know, kinetics, and, and it is, um, I would expect to see a level there between about four times the PAIC90, which would be about 664, um, all the way up to uh, potentially 12 um, times the PAIC90, um, which is over 2,000 nanogram per mil. So, Person falls kind of right in the middle. I think it's a good piece of information for for the case. Um, you know, pending more information about a, a threshold that we need to target. Oh, I don't think we can hear you still. I'm sorry. See your lips moving, but I can't hear you. 
Well, maybe I'll, while he's working out his technical issues, I'll just see if there's other panel members that wanted to comment on this case or how they might handle it. Well, I, I would just, Joe, I would just jump in and say, you know, there are like four separate tests um, that are positive. So I think the likelihood that this is a false positive is, 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 is low. Um, uh, but the size of the infection, if you, you could talk about that, you know, is probably very small. Um, and it doesn't surprise me that the, um, you know, they try, I think it was wise for Anu to try to get a proviral DNA resistance test, but I, that doesn't surprise me. That was negative. He probably has very few infected cells circulating. So, um, uh, and, you know, what to do exactly, <clears throat> I certainly would be relatively, um, confident that there there wouldn't be resistance here it's possible of course so I, I, it really to me it's about what what would you choose to treat this person with right. um, and i think that's a, a a wide open question and and i'm happy to comment but i'll i'll hold for for a minute maybe anu wants to talk about that yeah and i can walk through at least some of our our logic um with that and then yeah would love to to hear from um uh, some of the other sort of panelists. So, you know, we had started them uh, sort of knee-jerk on sort of TAP FTC, thinking that would be a fully suppressive regimen. We did not know uh, the whole partner history of the partner's genotype and whatnot until after the fact. And so after we received that information, the partner also receives care at our institution. So we were able to speak with the partner and 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 be able to take a look at their genotype and, and seeing that resistance, as well as this concern that the partner may have been off of medication for maybe a few weeks um, uh, in, in that time, um, made us um, a bit more wary uh, about uh, whether there was a transmitted insta resistance while supremely low. And I agree, not a huge concern. I think that was enough for us to get a bit spooked, uh, which is why we just replicated the partner's regimen um, uh, for the patient we had. Um, again, whether that's entirely the right call, I think we can totally discuss. Um, uh, but it, I think we were going with a, a very limited amount of information and, and trying to, again, try to preserve uh, this INSTI class as much as we could. I, I, Joe, I agree. I think, you know, we felt comfortable that, you know, by starting them on uh, a fully suppressive regimen, we could really avoid INSTI resistance in a CAB-LA breakthrough case, um, as sort of Susan Eshelman and, and others have shown, um, that able to sort of, you know, identify these patients early um, can really prevent that. Uh, but then we're all trying to figure out, you know, how to suppress them. And, and obviously, um, and when Rafi joins back, he can share the screen, you know, then the patient fully suppressed within a matter of days, which is, you know, not unusual based on how low his viruemia was. And we really couldn't get any other testing done uh, without sort of, you know, potentially pulling him off oral medication and leaving him just on cab. And so we're sort of in this holding pattern um, afterwards. Uh, but yeah, I would love to hear sort of some other clinicians on the call, what their thoughts were on maybe ART selection um, and, and whatnot. Actually, there's no right answer, but um, yeah, Joe, you wanted to weigh in what, what you might. No, have... I think Joshua, let someone else go. It's fine. I actually wanted to ask Pete something. And so the first thing I thought about when I looked at this, the timeline for this case was any impact of real pivoting, or sorry, uh, ritonavir UGT induction. And I know that like there's sources that say it should, it's not probably clinically relevant, but I do wonder about the time of uh, of that, like compared to when the next shot was and whether that would be enough to lower the trough levels to a point where you'd have, pro I don't know, it's, it's very 
Just curious. I kind of thought about that too. And uh, uh, I think it's, you know, possible that there was an interaction there that um, wasn't picked up, but um, you could also argue that it would go the other way. Right. <laughs> so I, I, I don't, it's not on the list of ones to, you know, to avoid, but uh, it was interesting the timing of when that happened. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we spoke with our pharmacists and, and, and trying to, to see, you know, and we did sort of our own course of lit review of can, um, you know, that ritonavir impact. And it didn't seem like it could in any sort of meaningful way or clinically meaningful way. Um, but it was something that, that was definitely something, again, another sort of um, interesting thing in this case. I'd also be curious from the pharmacist if there is potentially any impact of the testosterone, like was the patient injecting in the same site where the cabotegavir was going? I think testosterone often comes in these thick, you know, oily formulations. Um, so I don't know if there was any impact there, but we do have the drug level of the cabotegavir, you know, later on. This is Carolyn. I think I have more of a comment really than anything else, but I think I'm just struck by the fluidity and the evolution of the serology-based assays that you got. And it just sort of goes back to some of the material that Dr. Kelly was talking about, you know, sort of what if that uh, what if that fourth gen and antibody hadn't come back reactive, but you had a 30 and then you had a 20? Um, I'm just curious if that would have changed your approach. I, I don't think it would have personally for ours. I, I think seeing two um, detected viral loads for us would be um, enough. But if it was not detected, I think that would make things a lot more confusing to us. Um, and also to, 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 to say if we had not gotten the viral load at day 90 injection, um, the patient would have gotten an injection and come back in you know two additional months and potentially been diagnosed at that time too. Um, but but yeah, I, I think you know what I what we really wanted to highlight was you know these seroconversions on Kabbalah is obviously a very rare event. It's a real event, but, but rare. Um, uh, but, you know, we'll see these rare events happening in, in PrEP clinics. And, you know, the majority of PrEP is not being prescribed at academic medical centers that have access to labs that can run, you know, a cabotegravir level and, and whatnot. Um, it's uh, going to be in these community health centers that, that have, you know, the majority amount of PrEP prescriptions. So I think for us, it was really important to start, you know, for, for clinics who are implementing Cabalet specifically uh, to make sure they have good partnerships with academic institutions or uh, with, um, um, because I mean, like the first person I called with this case was Rafi and I emailed him and I presented the case to him and um, and he was able to connect me with, with Mark to get the, the Cabalet level done. So it was, it was really trying to utilize that academic network to, um, to, to help with this case while, while you know, we were treating on, on the other end. Okay, so I heard that Dr. Lando is having technical difficulties, but Fatima, I believe you can share his slides, and I think there may be a couple more concerned with this case. And then yeah. we can. I, I, knew, I, I guess in terms of treatment, I, I probably would have went with a just, um, you know, um, probably a fixed dose combination of, of BF um, TAF. Um, and the reason I would say that is a couple. One is that the that if he really had a, a, a substantial level of resistance, um, you, you might not have expected that kind of very low viral load. The the six the, the ninety two Q is, is unlikely to have much um, uh, provide much change in susceptibility to cabotegravir. And the the issue is you know like kind of you you're not really preserving integrase resistance. You're just kind of it's just unknown, right? I, I mean. Yeah. 
Um, uh, so, so if you wanted to use an integrase later in time for some reason, you'd still have the same conundrum. So I, I that's what I probably would have done. But but Rafi and I have had this argument in the past, um, and and so I totally understand where where you're coming from. I, there's no right answer, as multiple people have said, but but that's probably what I would have done. Um, okay. So yeah. You guys, can you hear me? This is Sue. Yes. Okay, good. All right. I was just going to say that Rafi's having technical difficulties, but I think Fatima, if you could share his slides, we'll just go on to the next ones and maybe move to the next case. I, I don't know if there were any. Oh, was there anything else on the first case? Oh, Rafi's back. Rafi's back. I still can't hear him. Can, um, can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. I'm so sorry about that. Technology is a wonderful thing, except when it isn't. Yes. Carry on, Rafi. We just uh, finished up case number one. Okay. Fantastic. Um, great. Uh, oh, uh, am I sharing again? Is that what I'm doing? Yes. Okay. No, Fatima's sharing. Okay. Great. So let's let's go to the second case. Thanks everyone for your patience. Okay. Um, so now we're going to move to a, a treatment situation. This is a 41-year-old female who received uh, an HIV diagnosis in 2008 during pregnancy. She was lost to follow up after the delivery, but returned in 2013. She's got a high BMI of 48 um, and had a motor vehicle accident um, while she was uh, uh, back uh, in care about six years after she came back in care and had limited functional use of her upper extremities with complicated by chronic pain and neuropathy, chronic vomiting, potentially related to opioid use for pain and neuropathy. Um, she'd gone through a number of uh, single tablet regimens between 2013 and 2018, um, including um, a, bo a boosted L-Vitegravir regimen with tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate, as well as a real piverine-based regimen with TAF and FTC. She had ultimately trans, trans, uh, transitioned to a Bictegravir TAF-containing regimen in November of 2018, which she was crushing and sprinkling on her food and had uh, intermittent adherence with viral blips in the past, um, uh, possibly related most recently to, uh, to injuries, but uh, then subsequently she resuppressed. There was no documented history of resistance, at least since 2014, um, and has heard about long-acting injectables and wanted to start. So she was confirmed undetectable in April of 2023, began um, uh, injectable cabotegravir rilpivirine, uh, and received a second dose four weeks later. Um, the second dose was on schedule, but the viral load at the time, drawn at the time of her second injection, was 4,040 copies. Uh, repeat labs uh, and a genotype were collected about two weeks after that second dose, after those initial results came back, and the viral load was down about um, a log at 443, and the genotype showed an E138A and an M148I. She was resumed on Bictegravir TAF, FTC, um, in July of 2023. So the question is, um, 
Apparently, this is early virologic failure after initiation of cabrilpivirine in the context of an RPV um, resistant mutation. And Fatima, can we go back one slide? Because I think the question is, um, you know, what would anyone have done anything different um, in terms of the decision to either start the long-acting injectables with that history and absence of resistance um, mutations documented? Would you have had concerns about doing that? Would you have done anything different with the initial viral load results coming back? Um, and would you have done anything different in terms of choice of oral regimen going forward? So let's see. Um, I don't know, Joe, do you want to sort of jump in and your thoughts on that? Yeah, boy, this is a complicated one. Um, cause, um, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I think this would be a really high risk person, but on the other hand, um, it sounds like she's struggling at best to, to take her oral therapy. I, I don't know, you know, um, you may have said, but I, I don't know what her, her viral load, um, her CD4 was and whether that's, um, also low and, 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 and that she's at risk of progression. I don't fully understand the genotype. Um, unfortunately, you can have an E138A in integrase or in and uh, RT. So I don't know if is that an RT mutation. Um, uh, it's actually a great question, and I'm, I'm the I think the person who sent this case in is not on the webinar at the moment, so I actually don't have that information. Yeah, if if we assume it's a in our T mutation, which looks like maybe the way it's um, uh, presented there, it, it you know it's not really a real pivoting mutation. It's it's a it's a polymorphism. So I don't I don't actually know what's going on here. Um, her you know it sounds like with her BMI injections maybe a challenge, um, but um, I might have tried it and and I think they maybe tried and failed. Fortunately. It doesn't look like integrase resistance was selected for, and um, and then um, uh, and and maybe BF TAF will continue to be successful for her. This is one where having a a a, a pivoting level might be interesting because I think in very I, I don't don't remember the BMI you said, but in very uh, obese people, I think sometimes it's injection failure. And, and you know, there have been, you reported one, there, there are certainly cases of kind of injection failure where it just, you, you, it goes too close to a vein and, yeah. or, or, and, and you just have no levels, right? It, it, um, yeah, so, you know, uh, Joe, the, the BMI was 48. So, you know. Yeah, that, that... so I think high risk of, of this not being selected resistance, but, but actually failure of the, maybe the first injection and then the second injection, maybe there's a, a partial response. Um, and um, uh, so I, I don't know. It, it's tough. But I think back on oral therapy is probably the right way to go for this person. Yeah, you know, um, I think that the question of whether drug levels here would be useful does end up looming large. And, you know, Pete, are we are we closer at all to sort of routine commercial availability of of, of concentration testing, you know, any time in the not too distant future? Uh, not at the moment in the U.S., unfortunately. Uh, if we lived in Europe and this was a European case, we, we would have access to several labs there. 
Um, I do think in the next six months, there are going to be some labs that come online. Uh, I talked to Johns Hopkins. Uh, they're th planning spring 2024 to, and this is for CLIA, I assume, right? Where you're reporting back to the patient. Um, and then uh, Columbia uh, in New York City also is going to offer, and actually Columbia says they will offer now. Um, and they've got a sort of a temporary CLIA agreement with the New York state that they can use for about 50 cases. So if anybody's got a really challenging case, um, you can reach out to me and I could connect uh, people to Columbia uh, for that. But, um, I'll, you know, there's uh, the same question of what's therapeutic. I think we have a little more information in, in this, uh, for this patient uh, for treatment. Uh, there are some thresholds that from the you know atlas and flare that have been proposed, um, you know 1,120 you know nanogram per mil for cab, well pivoting 32 nanogram per mil. So there are some numbers that we could um, you know use to, for this case. One one yeah. question I have: Can I go back to you all on? Does this patient need a loading dose? You know, with that big BMI because you know they they have lower initial first injection you know, troughs and, you know, so you could ask, you know, whether they needed a, a month load um, before that first injection um, as well. Another factor. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a really interesting question, both in the prevention and the treatment space. If there is a period of liability when you stop oral drugs and then immediately begin injectable, right. Both for prevention and for therapeutics, does it take some amount of time to get these suppressive or protective concentrations. I don't think anyone knows the answer and we're a little bit of a victim of our own success, right? The trials have been so stunningly successful in prevention and so exciting in treatment that there hasn't, I, I don't think been a lot of interest in investigating um, you know, these sort of odd scenarios. But I think it's a really important question and particularly for individuals born female, right? We know that the approach to steady state takes a lot longer. It lasts longer, but getting to steady state is a more prolonged process too. And you wonder if that's what's going on here. Um, so Pete, I think it's a really good question. I don't think we have any answers. You know, do you have any insights into, you know, it, when Columbia or Hopkins does come online, you know, who's going to pay for that that testing? Because I mean, is it going to bill going to come back to each institution and they're going to be left to figure out whether the institution is going to be able to eat those costs or is it going to be passed on directly to the patient? You know, I do think uh, insurances will will pay for, for TDMs if there's enough justification for it. Um, and I forgot to mention that Rilpivirine actually is available in the U.S. Uh, so University of Florida will run Rilpivirine you know, Chuck Peliquin's lab uh, in Florida and for about 75 bucks, um, you know, per test. So, so not, doesn't break, you know, break the bank. Um, but I do think insurance, I, I don't know what your uh, experiences are, but if there's justification. No, that's great. I, I haven't had any experience with successfully getting insurance to, to pay for it, but, um, but uh, I, I, I don't know if others have had either success or failure um, with, with getting insurances to pay for it? Any of the clinicians? I, no. I have not, no. 
No. Okay. All right. Um, I, I guess, you know, Joe, you know, when when you and Adia were reviewing the the data on um on uh you know uh risk factors for failure in the treatment space, you, you know, you know, we talked a little bit about high BMI um as potential risk factor. You know, does that you know, with, with 2020 hindsight, you know, would you have had additional pause here or again, is it just so personal? Yeah, I, I mean, I've been asked this and and I think that, you know, when you look at the data from the, um, the, the Chloe Orkins, I, I mean, that, that, you know, BMI is not a risk independent, uh, it, it, or it's a tiny, uh, risk, um, but but we're talking about BMI's 30 to 40 mostly, not 48. And I've been actually asked this exact question. And I don't know whether it's I I would be very anxious about, you know, someone with um, you know, BMI in the high 40s, or or we I was asked about someone who was above 50. And I I just said I, I'm just not confident you can get the medication where it needs to go more than more than, you know, kind of some, you know, uh uh, relationship to the size of the person and the pharmacokinetics, really, if you don't, like you said, you know, if you don't get a, a um, you know, if you don't create that um, uh, nodule, essentially, that structurally, you want to create a nodule, actually, if you don't do that, then in the right space, you, you're not going to get prolonged exposure. Um, so I don't know, Peter may have, Pete may have a, an idea about that. I, I just, I think it's, you just don't get it where you need it to be. Yeah, and it's that slow approach to steady state that you mentioned, Rafi, that I would worry about as well. So it's going to start very, very low in the first injection. Even if you're, you know, getting it, you know, you miss the muscle and hit the fat, it's just going to be a slow, slow increase up to where you need to be. Um, you know, getting back to the question of whether these people need loads, loading doses. Yeah. Um, you know. Kevin, in, in Boston, what? How are you guys approaching this? Are are you thinking of um, uh, people with really high BMIs as potential exclusion criteria? Are you having trouble sourcing these longer needles? I've heard that in some geographies, mm -hmm. it's really challenging to find uh, the two inch needles, which you might, you know, um, really want to have on hand for these higher BMI uh, patients. So great question. I'm not aware of any issues sourcing the needles um, in our location. You know, I do. Um, I think we would certainly think about the BMI um, in this patient being 48. Um, and I think it also um, just illustrates how many of the patients that we're kind of discussing injectable treatment with and who are interested in injectable treatment are not, you know, people who would probably have been in the clinical trials of this. And, you know, this is so common now, you know, this person was on a real pivoting-based regimen with maybe intermittent adherence in the past. They have the high BMI, but yet they're really struggling with oral therapy. And so you're kind of then thinking about the injectable. And I you know there are many, many other scenarios like that in our practice. And I think it just, this case really highlights the challenges that we're, we're facing. I think I, you know, potentially also would have um, offered and pursued injectable treatment for this patient, um, given the struggles that she's having. But um, uh, it, you know, many of the questions that we're facing are kind of not, uh, they're, they're the ones in these case series. They're not the ones uh, in the clinical trial. <laughs> and Carolyn, let me, let me ask you, right. Um, you know, this, I think this is one of the, the most frustrating clinical scenarios that we're all facing these days. You have somebody who's got previous sort of um, 
intermittent adherence to an NNRTI-based regimen. You don't have documented virologic failure on that regimen, but you have this question of spotty adherence. And you know, it, it feels to me like we're hearing these anecdotes from all over the place of exactly that. Intermittent adherence on an NNRTI re regimen, you can't show that there was um, an, uh, virologic failure on it, but then we have a, a case of of a failure on on cabril pivarine are are you seeing that and and how are you using that history or lack thereof in your decision making yeah thanks um so i'll sort of answer in two two scenarios i think in my own practice this would have been someone that i would have been open to you know you know, offering the cabril for, but I would have been very nervous. <laughs> this would not have been a patient that I wasn't nervous about. Um, we are hearing about cases like this on our HIV warm line and HIV uh, prep line, and I and I think that this is just very very common where where providers have assumed care for someone that they have minimal to no prior um, information on. I think for me the report of being mostly suppressed on these three orals is probably what would have said, okay, maybe that's just all I have to go on at this point, right? And to to offer the to offer the transition or the trial or, you know, a, a an attempt at this. I, I mean, this is a patient where I would have probably done um, a lot more counseling up front. Like if this doesn't work, this is going to be our plan. Um, this is not someone who I think I would have um, sort of only, you know, brought that conversation up after after the fact. And, and Carolyn, since since you already brought this up um, and we are going to have some of your your contact information for your warm line at the at the end of the slides for people. But could you talk a little bit about how your group assists people and what kinds of questions that you're sort of set up to assist people with? Yeah, so I think our group in general really encourages providers to do due diligence in terms of history gathering. Um, it is possible to get records. It's not always easy, but it is possible. And I think for these scenarios, getting access to those records is going to be more valuable than not. I think, you know, if you are able to get them, it's going to be time well spent. So I think our, our approach is, you know, get as much history as possible, sort of lay out what the options are. You know, we encourage individualized decision making to, um, to just make sure that the patient is part of the conversation and engage. Um, and then depending on whatever the case is, we will talk about what the various oral um, combination options are if it doesn't feel like the right thing to keep someone on injectable cabril. Okay, great. Um, anyone have any additional last uh, comments on case two? I have a couple of comments. Um, for what, well, first off, I think that this case makes me a little bit nervous just because of some of the things that have already been highlighted, notably the BMI, but I think uh, somebody in the chat here not too long ago talked about doing a DNA archive in somebody that had previous uh, repivering exposure. And I think I'd probably, I would probably opt for that, I guess, when, when thinking about this. But what I really wanted to talk about was uh, something that we've seen on a couple of occasions where, and it specifically happens, it seems with folks that are over, have a BMI over 30, is a leakage at the site of injection. And if you inject and you have some leakage, what does that mean? You know, does that, how do you quantify that? Does you know, beyond getting the drug to the muscle, I mean, that's clearly not even in the body. So it makes you wonder, you know, what, what type of, you know, is that an administration challenge? What is that? Is it a BMI thing? I'm not sure, but something to consider. So Josh, since since you brought that up, 
are the, is there standard guidance for what what you do if you know you see visible leakage of the of the of the product at one of the injection sites? I mean, what what's what's your best recommendation? I don't really have a good recommendation on that. I mean, the the few times that that we've seen it's been minimal, from what I understand. But uh, still, you can't. It's hard to quantify, and you know. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I guess, I guess the one thing uh, is, you know, then you wonder if you, that's sort of a situation where you might need to do bridging. If you're yeah. con if you're concerned that someone didn't get a full dose, you're not going to be comfortable, um, uh, you know, administering another full dose because you don't know how much was gotten, and you know, for that one or two month period, do you need to 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 bridge? And you know, I don't know if anyone else would. Would try and do that um, in that situation, but it seems like that'd be sort of the safest option. Yeah, and I think you know the PK on that it would be super interesting. I mean, to, to, as has been brought up already, do you switch somebody like that to a every month injection versus every two? You know, there, there's so many questions that I don't think are really answered yet. Yeah, I, I mean, just to harken back, just as we get ready to move to the the next case. Um, Something that Joe mentioned, you know, there's this really fascinating MRI study that was done by a group at Hopkins um, compare uh, in collaboration with the manufacturers of cabotegravir that showed that, you know, even with appropriate needle lengths, um, it's amazing where a, a presumed intramuscular injection actually lands, right? It very often lands in the subcutaneous space, even when you think it's intramuscularly, sometimes it's intramuscularly, and there's one really wild report of the injection ending up retroperitoneally. So I, I don't know how that got there or, you know, the anatomy is a little frightening. It's almost a kidney biopsy, but um, just a reminder that as precise as we think our injection techniques are, um, you know, people's anatomy different, is different where they store um, fat um, is different. <laughs> um, and and you know the PK of these drugs is incredibly variably variable interpersonally and even interinjectionally within the same person, and it's something we really don't fully understand. So it really um, begs the question of how therapeutic drug monitoring is or isn't going to play a role um, in in how we use these drugs moving forward, or are we never going to get the answer and we're going to get better drugs, um, you know, before we get an answer to that? So. Um, it's all all super interesting. Anyway, I don't want to belabor belabor the point here. Let's uh, Fatimak, Let's move on to the to the third case. Um, okay, we already did the what would you do, um, and we answered that so completely. Okay, so now we have a 29 year old um, uh, cis male who received an HIV diagnosis in 2007. Um, the HIV was complicated by severe chronic kidney disease, presumed secondary to HIV-associated nephropathy. We don't know their BMI. They initiated ART on um, a boosted L-vitegravir with TAF um, regimen that was complicated by non-adherence. Um, the patient suppressed after transitioning to a Bictegravir TAF-containing regimen with self-reported good adherence. CKD ultimately worsened, ultimately with the creatinine clearance dropping below 30, and then was transitioned to a um, 3TC dolutegravir rilpivirine based regimen 
and remained suppressed um, thereafter. Lost to follow up during COVID, unfortunately, as we saw with a lot of patients, but re-engaged in 2020 in December, um, uh, needed to start hemodialysis. We don't know exactly um, what uh, the indication for starting dialysis was at that time, but um, had been off ART for about nine months. Um, restarted um, a TAF FTC boosted darunavir regimen while awaiting repeat genotyping. Um, genotyping did not have insti mutations, um, uh, but was uh, kept on the darunavir containing regimen uh, and suppressed undetectable levels, as you can see in this little graph here. Patient uh, expressed some interest in the injectable cabrilpivirine started the 30-day oral lead-in period before uh, starting the intramuscular version in March of 2022. Initially was virologically suppressed on the injectable cabrilpivirine um, and uh, was uh, underwent a, um, a deceased donor renal transplant <laughs> uh, in October of 2022. Unfortunately, um, on admission for that transplant, the viral load came back at 4,150, and a genotype had the K101E and N348I mutations in RT, and then integrase E138A. There's Joe Iran's favorite question right there about whether this E138A was in RT or integrase. Here we know for sure, as well as G140S and Q148R. Um, so the, the patient was transitioned back to the boosted darunavir containing regimen and slowly suppressed, but obviously with uh, the transplant now having been performed, the drug-drug interactions are gonna be a beast um, to, to deal with. So I guess the, the question is, you know, with that previous history, actually let's go back, Fatima, just so we can see the, the timeline um, for, for what happened here. Um, and, you know, the exposure to the only NNRTI that we know about being the real pivirine as part of the dolutegravir um, real pivirine, you know, was there any, were there any clues here that would have made you say, don't try this? So Anu, I think this was, this was your patient, is that right? Or you were, you were involved? Do you want to talk yeah, about yeah, what, what you guys our, were our, thinking? Our yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, no, this was a patient, um, you know, uh, like you said, re-engaged in care after COVID-19, had progressed. Uh, the, the, the creatinine clearance just continued to decline, and he actually was admitted in, 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 um, in the end of 2020 uh, for sort of uh, acute and chronic renal failure and started on dialysis that admission. And that's when we were able to re-engage in care with him. And, and, you know, the reason we had to cobble together a regimen was because he was in that gray area prior, you know, between, you know, a creatinine clearance less than 30, but not on dialysis. But since he was on dialysis, it opened up a few different options for us. But we opted for the boosted Darunavir, just given the concerns for adherence with his prior regimens, so as we waited for the genotype to come back. But as a genotype, at least at that point, with his viral load at like 71,000, um, didn't show any sort of, you know, concern for, for mutations. We gave the option of switching, but the patient felt okay with continuing. And personally, I, I, I we, we feel like there is more forgiveness with, you know, uh, missing doses of a PI. So we felt more comfortable, you know, continuing that PI based regimen uh, prior to transplant or prior to his uh, desire to switch to, uh, to injectable cab, um, cab ripovirine. So, Anu, maybe you can share with us how did it go 
um, being forced into a position where you had to use a boosted protease inhibitor in the context of the um, the immunosuppressive medications. Yeah, I mean, it was um, it was kind of so. So the patient came in for their their trans. They got a call that the kidney was ready. They came in for for their transplant, and they were suppressed just about three weeks prior. So this all happened in a matter of weeks that they unsuppressed. And so, um, so thankfully, I mean, that didn't hold up the transplant. I think that was a concern that I was having. Like, oh, but they, they actually, it takes so long for the viral load to come back. They actually finished the surgery, and then we found out the viral load afterwards. Uh, but but yeah, putting them back on the PI was a major discussion with our transplant team, um, um, and nephrology team, and, and ID team, trying to figure out. Uh, you know, how do we dose his TACRO uh, moving forward? And, um, you know, I, I think uh, uh, we were able to titrate that dose while he was admitted post-transplant. So at least that was um, important. I, what, what was a bit confusing, and I'm, I'm interested to know for other folks, we expected his viral load to come back, I think, quicker than it did. Like he didn't fully suppress for nearly three months after restarting on, um, uh, on, on sort of a of what we consider to be a suppressive regimen, which also made us a little bit nervous, uh, to be honest, at the same time. Um, uh, but we were at least able to titrate his uh, anti-rejection medications during that admission. Um, and uh, But obviously, this is something that he'll have to um, deal with for the rest of his life. It also comes back to something I think Carolyn brought up earlier with, you know, these, these questions of you know, what kind of conversations do you have with somebody if they opt to go on cabrilpivirine in the event that it does fail, um, you know, and people sort of make that decision anyway, that, you know, the consequences aren't just, you know, a potentially less tolerable regimen, but, um, you know, who knows what the future holds for any patient. And, you know, as we all get older, we all need polypharmacy and there's so many drugs, um, that have interactions with boosted protease inhibitors, that it becomes a non-trivial conversation, you know, particularly with aging, aging populations, right? I mean, you know, statins are basically going to be in the water, right? Um, particularly for anyone living with HIV at this point. And, and these are going to be complex interactions. And, you know, Pete and Josh, I don't, I don't know if, you know, from a pharmacology standpoint, you know, how, you know, would you ever sort of, you know, think of that as a contraindication, you know, or is that something that, you know, it's just part of the conversation as you discuss this with people? It sort of pushes your seesaw one way or the other. I mean, luckily we can do TDM for, you know, the immunosuppressants and um, that, now all all roads are leading back to TDM with all these cases. I, I'm like, you know, the the importance of drug concentrations and and but I I do think you can manage them, um, you know, with levels. And and uh, Josh, coming back to something you talked about on the last case, you know, is this is this somebody again with the retrospectoscope and you know the armchair quarterback? Would you have tried to do um, uh, a, a Gina Shore? Uh, but before making that switch, I mean, we seem to be talking about that in a lot of these cases. Of course, this is these are select cases where things went sideways, right? We're not talking about in all the cases where things go just fine and swimmingly. So, you know, I don't want to color everybody's, um, you know, perspective by saying we should do it in all cases. But you know, how are we going to figure out, you know, judiciously when to use that that testing? 
I probably would. And I mean, the, the thing that really strikes me with, with this person is they were out of care for, you know, what is that nine months or whatever. And that to, to me, that tells you kind of enough to, they're already kind of high risk, I guess I would put them. And, you know, whether capitocabrinopiprine is the right move for that specific person or not, you know, it's really hard to say. Could have been definitely, but, you know, with regard to what Pete said earlier, I don't really worry about like immunosuppressants. I mean, certainly it's a risk with DDI and everything, but it's, if, if the whole treatment team is, is in, in tune, right. And everybody's talking, which, you know, sometimes that doesn't always happen very well, uh, then it should be managed pretty, pretty easily to be honest. But, um, but this, this patient just seems really challenging just all the way around to me. But I mean, I, 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 I'm going to vouch for the patient here um, yeah, uh, right. and say that he was out of care where majority of our populations were, were out of care during this time. And we did get a, you know, a genotype, you know, when he re-engaged in care, which didn't show sort of any concerning mutations. And so we didn't feel the need to, you know, undergo a gene assure at that point since we had, you know, detectable viremia. And, and, and I, I just, you know, I have to, you know, we've talked about equity this morning, and I think it's important to recognize that, you know, patients with social determinants that largely impact their adherence may be the ones that may benefit the most from, you know, on long-acting injections. And we've talked about that too. And so I think it's important for us not to be gatekeepers um, uh, with thinking about who can benefit and who we consider quote unquote high risk uh, for long acting injections, but really having you know a, 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 a really comprehensive sort of a patient centered discussion, shared decision making around you know what happens if things do go south, what are what is Plan B and C if, if that happens, and I do think that needs to happen more in the clinic rooms than, than have been happening since we've been implementing uh, long acting treatment. Um, and Anu, did you, did you guys think about doing anything wild and wacky, like throwing ibolizumab or 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 len into the mix, given the previous real pivarine dolutegravir exposure, or did that not not even come up? Um, you mean when um, for their desire for long acting, or yeah. after the failure? No, 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 um, before. So Oh yeah, so so Len wasn't an option. Um, uh, it wasn't. Uh, well, no, it would have. Been, it would have been. I, I think he wouldn't meet criteria because he didn't have multidrug resistance, um, at least at the time uh, when he was in, interested in long-acting injections. Um, uh, he had wild-type virus uh, from the most recent genotypes we had, and the apolizumab. I think. Um, in addition to his dialysis that he's coming in three times a week, then coming in every two weeks for another infusion, um, it's not something we even considered. Uh, he came in interested in long-acting uh, treatment. Um, and, and we thought, again, as someone who's had issues with adherence in the past, maybe this would be a somewhere. Um, and he did well, obviously, for a few months, but um, uh, this just shows. And again, he didn't miss any, like all these injections were on time. So it wasn't like he was missing doses or, or, or whatnot. So, you know, I, I, I'm not entirely confident of where we would, like where, what he could have done differently um, uh, versus this potentially being what Joe was mentioning, that 0.5% failure rate that we see that unfortunately just happened in someone right before they went in for like a, like a kidney transplant. Okay. Yeah. Right. I, I think that the, the only potential lesson here is, as you know, when, 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 when someone's off therapy for, for nine months, um, the, 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 Genotype on on the um, uh, viremic sample, you know, may may not um, reveal the mutations that that lead to some sort of fitness, and 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 therefore that you see a wild type virus when I I, I uh, 
I knew I would have done the same thing. I would not have gotten an archive genotype. I would have done exactly the same thing you did. But, but you know, uh, you know, everybody's smart in retrospect. Uh, you know, so, so, so maybe you know, uh, you know, it's it's weird because he was. Um, well, I guess we don't know for sure. Do we know for sure that that he was suppressed on three TC uh, dalutegravir ropivirine? Um, he was right before he lost care. For, oh, really? about, okay, okay. So, yeah, so, yeah, I, I, yeah. I don't, I don't know what to say except for, um, you know, I think incredibly bad luck, and and it's one of those people that that, you know, um, you know, doesn't doesn't make it for whatever reason, and and unfortunately selected for, you know, an array of integrase mutations that really I think pretty much wipes out twice daily dalutegravir, you, right. you know, just really not not a good good spot for, for. I think the question we were grappling with was heading into his transplant, the plan was actually to um, enhance his regimen by adding an oral regimen because there just isn't data on cabotegravir perverine in a post yeah. or in, in the immediate post trans period. So we were planning on adding potentially TAF based on how his renal function, you know, studied after transplant or 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 another potential um, uh, NRT, uh, NRTI. Yeah, no, that's um, a, that would have been a good thought. The, the one thing I was going to ask Pete really was that you know you talked about a loading dose and 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 not in this case because I don't I don't know how how um, large this person was probably maybe. Not not that large, but um, as opposed to a loading dose, you know, you could actually just extend the oral therapy, right? Um, it, you know, um, uh, uh, give give someone an injection, but don't actually stop their oral therapy. In someone with a very large BMI, where you're worried that it might be two to three weeks, you know, you could actually do that. The drug interactions. I mean, if you, it's really not that much of an issue. I, I hadn't thought of that as an approach. Um, uh, so that that's all uh, something that could have been done. In this case, I I don't, you know, I I don't I don't know what could have been done except you know you did what you thought was best for the patient and and it just didn't turn out as well as it it could have. And you tried the oral lead in. It looks like with the with the cabral pyrene, I assume. And yeah, this is one of our first adopters. So we actually still were, you had the oral lead as mandatory for all of our, um, uh, when we first adopted our, our initial protocol for, for uh, capital covering. But Joe, it's something that we, you know, definitely, I think is, is something that people should keep in mind, you know, with starting either injectable prevention or treatment is, you know, it isn't crazy to do some amount of overlap and particularly yeah, no, not crazy at all. Particularly, no, you know, worth, with individuals born female, right? But even individuals born male. Yep. No, I totally my, agree. My BMI's. Yep. Totally agree. And just so the audience is clear, there aren't data that support that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, that that you're you're hearing people who are just you know seeing a lot of this <laughs> muse about things that might make sense. So please don't don't run out and tell your colleagues they told me to do this. Um, it, we're just saying that in some of these complicated cases, it might not be unreasonable to, you know, we talk of cover the tail, cover the tail, cover the tail in prevention, but is the, actually the question we want to be asking, cover the nose rather than cover right. the tail in both treatment and prevention. And no answers, just more questions. I'm sure we're being tremendously clinically helpful to you all here. Um, uh, bottom up, can you just go to our last slide? This this just shows you 
um, that that I bit off way more than I than we can chew. I had seven cases for us, wow. and and we're we're way out of time. But I I wanted to um, put this up. This is really critical. This top number here is Carolyn's group. Um, you know, these are really complicated cases without clear answers. And here is your phone a friend, right? You know, you can, you know, this is the group that has the funding and the expertise, you know, to help you when you get these really complicated questions. And, um, and, and it's really important that you have this website and this number, these numbers um, easily accessible because we we don't have all the answers to all these questions and you really want um, the best advice helping you. Um, there, there are a number of investigational studies that um, are gonna help us answer some of these diagnostic questions in the PrEP space, including the Ciro PrEP study at UCSF. Um, and um, I apologize with my sort of loss of, of audio function there in the first case. I don't know if you all talked about this, but this question of, of Anu's patient, um, you know, now all his HIV testing is negative, you know, uh, a year and a half later, um, and, and we still um, don't know his actual HIV status this late. And is it possible that his reservoir was set up so in such minuscule levels that ART to this point has actually cured him just with straight up ART? At this point, we don't know the answer, but there's a study that is going to try to answer this question. It's called ACTG 5321. So if you get a PrEP, um, a CAB PrEP failure patient um, whose viral load never gets above 1500, please um, let, let us know, let the ACTG know. Um, we'll find a, a site nearby to you that can get that, that, that patient enrolled because we need to answer that question. This this really low viral load smoldering viremia with um, with the really difficult to ascertain and and discriminate HIV test results we don't know what it means um, and and we need to figure that out but it's pretty clear we need better diagnostics as a as a piece of that um, just coming on the last couple of minutes to a couple of questions that are in our chat um, we had um, a, a question of leakage with a z-track technique someone said they, they thought that 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 a z-track technique really should help with that um i don't know pete or josh do you do you have any sort of commentary on uh, on sort of the pharmacology or leak techniques of various injection strategies or anybody else have have insights on that yeah i'll just say you know the the remember there's a small number of people but the times it's happened to us you know we, we've We've done the Z track method, so it's after you, after you, you know, let it come back, and then then it comes out. But um, yeah, I mean, that's the whole purpose of the Z track, right? To kind of lock it in there. If it doesn't lock it in, uh, yeah, potential problem. So, Rafi, I noticed in the Q and A, there's quite a lot of questions about, like you said, the confusing nature of the antigen antibody tests in these complicated prep scenarios. And so I don't know if any of the panel members wanted to type in any responses, please uh, feel free. There were a couple about potential cross-reactivity with COVID testing, which I don't know if you want to comment on or anyone else. Yeah, I'm not aware of any data of false positive HIV testing in the context of COVID. I'm right. not sure if anyone else is. Um, 
I, I do think the one sort of thing that is really provocative about Anu's case there, right, is you have what we call orthogonal tests that are positive, right? You've got antibody tests and you've got viral load tests that are positive. It's kind of hard to imagine what's going to, to result in that as, as a false positive. So you're sort of stuck um, in those sorts of situations. Anyone else aware of any sort of COVID related things that might- The, the only thing I, I would say was... about COVID is that both COVID vaccine and, and COVID infection, if you check a viral load a week after a COVID vaccine or COVID infection, that person is very likely to be viremic um, because of release from, um, we have one person uh, uninjectable, you know, who was in the, you know, 4,000. And, uh, you know, after a vaccination, it was like a few days after. And then and then a week later, because, you know, we called them in, blah, blah, blah. It was not detected. So so that's the only thing I know of. Um, I don't know of uh, false positive testing. Um, there, but Joe, there was a report before... in CID of yeah. false positive antibody antigen tests in the context of COVID, active COVID infection or a higher rate of that. But I mean, again, in this patient, you have multiple tests. Um, ah. suggesting HIV infection. And so, um, you know, it's, I think this is actually one of the cases of, of you know, likely HIV infection during long-acting PrEP that's maybe more clear-cut that the person truly has HIV. With many others, it's actually, I think, more challenging to sort out. And, you know, sometimes there's just the HIV RNA of 30 and then everything else negative subsequently. Yeah. And was that a false positive? Was it not? It, it can be challenging. And yeah. Kevin, to your point, thanks for bringing that up. You know, I, I'm sad that we didn't get to a case of exactly that. Um, but, you know, uh, no one knows the right answer for how you manage those really challenging situations. Um, I will just put out there that, um, you know, the ongoing open label extensions for 083 and 084 are trying to figure out, you know, what is the sensitivity and specificity, positive predictive value of an isolated you know, positive, you know, RNA at the lower limit of quantification. And what do you do with that? We don't know the answer now. What the studies are doing is they're using the following rubric, right? They're, they're saying a single RNA value greater than 200 copies on just one measurement, they're recommending treatment or two separate date draws, any detected RNA at any level, even if it's below the level of quantification, that also is the approach to recommend therapy. Is that the right approach? No one has any idea, but that's what's being uh, you know, studied. And so we'll at least be able to report on it. But the, I think the take home message is we need better diagnostics. Kevin, I don't know if you wanna sort of comment on that since you had a really vexing situation of exactly that. Yes, you know, we, we had a patient who, um, was you know on time for his cab injections had all the kind of initial negative testing negative hiv rna negative antibody antigen at all the time points and he came in for his third injection had his testing drawn received the injection and he had a detected but lower than 20 hiv uh, rna um, his other testing was negative um, and you know it's it's really a quandary on what to do um, and you know, the, um, if you look at the CDC guidance, they say that, you know, you can potentially sort this out over one or two weeks. Um, and, and I think that's not the case <laughs> uh, in many of these scenarios. It takes much longer. For our particular patient, um, 
you know, we went with um, kind of option one uh, that Colleen Kelly talked about. Um, they've remained on PrEP and all subsequent testing, including qualitative RNAs, have been negative. Um, so there was just that single, you know, less than 20 HIV RNA. Um, so I think, you know, only time will tell and potentially more data will tell what, you know, what the best approach is. But it is quite challenging, I think, in clinical practice. And you know, even though the HIV RNA is a very sensitive and specific test, um, there are potentially false positives. And the more people you have on CAB who are all getting at least six RNAs per year, I mean, I think in any, you know, program of any size, you're likely to encounter false, you know, true false positives um, uh, with some regularity. So yeah. I think more to be seen. Definitely. All right. Well, we are at the end of our time together. So I would really like to thank all of the panelists for their really insightful and great comments um, and for everyone in the audience for sticking with us and putting your great questions um, in the Q&A, uh, the ones that we didn't get to. We will try to get back to you um, as soon as we can um, with answers to your questions. 